Drinking with Authors contains adult themes and subjects, including discussions involving alcohol. We ask if you are drinking along to please drink and listen responsibly. Enjoy the show. We're drunk and we're back. Let's do this. Okay. Oh, he's recording. I can tell because there's a little red button. Okay, welcome to Drinking with Authors, the literary briefs episode. I'm your host, Erica Lance, and with me today is... Valerie Willis, and also with us today is Jonathan Mayberry. Zombie hand. Okay, so first what we're drinking again, just in case for some stupid, screwed up reason people start with this episode. I'm drinking Old Smoky Tennessee Mango Habanero Whiskey on the rocks because I'm a boss today. Val, what are you drinking that you already finished? But go ahead. <laughs> no, 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 there's still some left in the pickle jar, but I'm at the bottom of a Rosa Regalia. <laughs> okay, and you're drinking it out of what kind of pickle jar for the... Mount um, of Kosher Dill, the Petite Snack Crackers edition. <laughs> Did you rinse it first, or is that pickle juice infusing the... Uh... No, 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 no. We rinse these first. It's because the, the saying in this household, because it's a nice 1965 Florida house, so they were all made with terrazzo flooring. Mama, don't cry when the pickle jar breaks on the floor. <laughs> I've lost all my other cups. This is all I got. Awesome. Well, I'm drinking coffee with not Creek 100 in it. My favorite bourbon. Uh, I'm a bourbon guy. So uh, this is a So if you would like a free picture with Jonathan Mayberry at any event, Knob Creek 100 Brew. Um, I can be bad. <laughs> I can be proud. I just really need you now, if somebody walks up with a bottle, to give them a free picture because otherwise it's going to look horrible for this podcast. <laughs> okay. So this is literary briefs. This is um, the rapid fire questions. So the first, I, I only get two in because I'm I'm already really drunk. Um, so <laughs> the first rapid fire question is, what is your favorite book of all time? Oh, favorite book of all time is I Am Legend by Richard Matheson. It's the template for all apocalyptic novels written in 1954. Um, it is also the first uh, time... Uh, there have been a lot of horror novels with science fiction, like Frankenstein and Jekyll and Hyde. This is the first time the science was actually given. It actually goes into the science of the vampire plague that, that is the basis of it. It's also what inspired Night of the Living Dead. Um, and that was you know, written and directed by George Romero. So, and both Matheson and, Brad, and, and uh, Romero were friends of mine. So there's a lot of sentimental attachment to it, too. It's a short novel. It's brilliant. I read it every Halloween. Okay, what do you think of the movie then? That's not the second question normally, but I'm going into the movie. There, there have been three adaptations of it. There was The Last Man on Earth with Vincent Price, which is a little more faithful, but one of the most crushingly dull movies of all time. Sadly, it should have been great, wasn't. Then there was Omega Man with Charles Heston, where instead of them being vampires, because in the book it's a vampire club, he turned them into cranky albinos with sunglasses. And I'm not sure why that's scary. <laughs> And it was terrifying in the 1950s. And then the Will Smith version, the first half of it was excellent. And then they introduced the actual, they, they, they're more zombies in this one. And they all look like nude Ted Danson's. So you have <laughs> scaring its own way. But the problem with that movie and with the second one, uh, Mega Man, is they completely misunderstood or didn't care about why the book is called I Am Legend. They completely ignore the third act which turns it from being a science fiction horror into a brilliant social commentary. And as a result, the movies are, are for me, thematically failures. I know 
you know, uh, Mega Man, uh, or I Am Legend made a lot of money. It was, it was, you know, a really good film. And if you hadn't read the book, if you read the book, it is a deep, deep, deep disappointment. Um, no, and that's what I've heard from people who've actually read the stories is that it is not. And then you get Erica all into her blackout rage again about taking a story and what is the story. I'm telling you, if you ever need somebody to be in a blackout rage, I'm a great person to go. You didn't tell the right story. At the same time, I, of course, realize, hashtag, that if you are doing a cinematic experience, Val's laughing at me, my hashtags, but if you're doing a cinematic experience of a movie, you can't take the entire book. Like Jurassic Park, I went, they're making a dinosaur movie for children. They took about six pages out of that book and yeah. made it into a movie versus the actual movie. Great, granted, but the thing with I Am Legend is the reason that book is still selling a half a century, or yeah, a ha- more than half a century later, is because it was brilliantly insightful about our hubris as human beings. And right. if you, if they made if the first half of I, of I Am Legend, Will Smith made a promise of that because he was involved in, in causing the disease and trying to stop it and so on. Um, but the second half just becomes an adventure story, and they could, if they had shot the ending of that book. That that would have hit. That would have made Academy Award, uh, the movie an Academy Award winner. It would have been brilliant. It would be talked about. It would be talked. But instead, they chickened out and wrote something with some stupid happy ending that has absolutely nothing to do with the story. And it's a cop off of, of the ending of that is a cop off of uh, the movie version of Damnation Alley, which was itself a bad adaptation of Roger Zelazny's book. So um, copying something bad to make to make something bad when you you had a brilliant. Easy to shoot ending pisses me off. So I oh I finally got it. I finally got the Jason. I have him in my black outrage corner about whether or not you can take a book and get the correct message. Because um, I talk about this because I feel like Hunger Games actually did fairly well with the books to the movies because it you know obviously it's way more detailed and way more political in the books, but I felt like. At the end, they didn't make Katniss and them these hero characters that were fine. They were still broken at the end, which is how they ended up in the book. I think it's important to keep that dynamic because if you come through a super traumatic experience and you're like, ding, I'm happy, you just kind of go, I'm sorry, what? You you can capture the essence (laughs) of Jurassic Park. still capture the, the essence of, you know, there are things we probably shouldn't do in science. Not that man should not tempt, you know, do what God does, but just think think through the consequences. That came through, you know, pretty well. The Martian was was very faithfully done and an exciting movie. You yeah. Can, I, I understand when they change the ending of a, of a movie to make it more exciting than the book, because some books, like the Dexter TV series, um, the, you know, the first few seasons of which were brilliant, um, were based on about 4% of the de- first Dexter novel. It was a be- it was better than the Dexter novel, um, but when when you get to something like I Am Legend, there's a reason it's an enduring classic taught in literature and political science classes. I think it's very rare that we get a movie that's better than the movie. Like Forrest Gump, is, the movie was way better than the book. I tried, I could not finish. That's one of my do not finish books. But I'm also the type of person that um, when I go to see a movie that I know is based off off a book, I try to just. Dis- disconnect because there's no way there's no humanly way for them to possibly as a writer I know I understand this 
more so now than I ever have in the past, that they're going to capture everything that needs to be captured visually as that was no i think though that when you take a book you have to go what story do you want to tell out of this book like what is the storyline you want to tell and i'll have to say because i know this is one of your friends from v wars ian summerhalter by empire diaries what i liked about that is i went back and read the book after i watched the series and it's a cw series so it's teenage drama Whatever. There's a typical pattern for that. But I actually very much loved those characters on Vampire Diaries. But what I loved is they actually added diversity into the series that just FYI was not in the fucking book. Like there were all white people in the book. There was no diverse characters in the book. And I love that they added that to the story. But and I think that you can do that. It's just like, are you helping the story or hindering the story? Like one of the books that I talk about is The Fault in Our Stars. And to me, I read the book, which was brilliant. And to me, they destroyed it in the movie. The point of that book. Yeah. And, and so I am legend is that it's, it's my gold standard for how not to adapt a book. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I say that only because I know that you're not writing all your adaptations of books. And I really think you should put that as a clause in your contract. No, I just did a pilot adaptation of one of my graphic novels. So, you know. But um, one, one other real quick note on that. Um, one of the, the, the times where they, they did a better ending for the movie, though it's controversial, nobody likes it, than was in the novella, was, was uh, The Mist. I thought it was a much better ending uh, than, than Stephen King's original. And King liked the ending better, too, which is fun. You know, I love King, Stephen King's version of when he talks about his books being adapted. Is He talks about, like, I actually love both the versions of It. I love the original Tim Curry just because I'm a huge Tim Curry fan. A little cheese with the creature at the end, but the fact is, is the action in that movie was the, I'm sorry, I should say the uh, made for TV, whatever. Um, and then the it versions I thought was great, but I know Stephen King's version of it is very much like I, I kind of, I've sold the rights to this book. They're going to do what they want to do with it. Right. With adaptation. You what? He does not interfere with the adaptations. No, I don't think so. I think, though, when I read when I read a book and then I see the adaptation, obviously they will never get what was in a novel into uh, – unless they do a long TV series, you're never going to get what was in the novel, all the little details, stuff like that. It's impossible because we write – 50, 80, 100, in your case, my friend, 200,000 words sometimes in the book, that you will never get necessarily in a TV adaptation. But did they decide on their own to go to left field and do something completely different than the story? Yeah, because the writers the writers who do the adaptations want it to be their version because that's that's their credentials for their next whatever they sell next. So, anyway. Totally. What, what okay. Next speed this question. Leads- this question. Next, question. Next question. Next question. What if, book? Go ahead, Val. What, you know my next. What, speak. I know. I know. What book did you least like? Like, what book do you hate? Like, for example, uh, Mark Munsey does not like Jane Austen anything. <laughs> Silas Mourner is the is the worst book I've ever read. Which one? Silas Mourner. It's an old classic they used to teach as required reading in school. It's a piece of junk when it was written. It was a piece of junk now. And even as a kid reading it in school, I'm like, why the hell am I reading this? It has no value. I, it's fallen off of a lot of uh, required reading lists. It just wasn't a good book. But but it was 
It was for some reason a classic, considered a classic. Just because it's old doesn't mean it's a classic. What do you, what was your favorite book? So we're old enough. I'm going to say that we're old enough to have required reading lists. I can say that because my daughter, who is now 21, she's an army medic, but she was allowed to read fucking Twilight in high school because they were allowed to choose their books. Don't get me started because she threw the book at me when Edward asked her to marry him. But um, what were your required reading that you loved? Huh. Um, well, I, I really enjoyed The Martian Chronicles, really enjoyed To Kill a Mockingbird. Really enjoyed oh, that's one of my favorites, To Kill a Mockingbird. Hell Two Cities, I thought was, was an excellent piece of writing. Oliver um, Twist was a favorite of mine as well. Yeah, I, that was on my reading list. Uh, Ivanhoe was, but I didn't like it. Um, I liked the concept of Ivanhoe, but I didn't like the book that much. It felt a little wordy. Um, but also, I, I actually went up getting uh, books into the Philadelphia school system. Uh, I, in AP English, we had to propose a book to be added to the reading list and defend it. And then we actually, you know, if, if we passed certain tiers, we had to defend it to the school board. I got Lord of the Rings into the reading requirements for honors English in the Philadelphia school system. That is awesome. Uh, I to teach us a college-level Lord of the Rings class. She has a PhD in English literature. She teaches it. And what's really funny about it is I find myself, when having conversations about Lord of the Rings, having because she also is a big fan of Summerillion, which a lot of people, because the, his son put that together based on all of his yeah. notes, and it's interesting because I'll have a conversation about that again versus the movies and what they did and what they did with the characters in the movies. Yeah, I I, I like somewhere early. I like a lot of the Tolkien stuff. But uh, Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit you know, were great. I, I, I thought it was one of my first accomplishments as, as, a, as a wannabe writer is to, to make sure that was, that was added to the, the reading list. But uh, um, also in... Uh, there was a book that wasn't required reading that was re recommended to me by Bradbury, and that was um, The Haunting of Hill House. Oh, yes. That's it, a great one. my favorite um, example of superb writing because it, it does one of those things that, that good books should. It doesn't fill in all the blanks, so it, it, it encourages the reader to co-create the story, participate in the telling of the story. The and reader immersion is amazing in that book. What's it? The reader immersion in that book is amazing. I, I read that uh, probably for the twentieth time recently, and it's and I every time I have a different opinion as to whether it's ghosts or or whether she's bug fuck nuts, and I go back and forth. And uh, most recently it was ghosts, but next time I read it, she'll probably just be bug fuck nuts. What do you think of the series? Because then the, I will have to say from just a if you don't take the book into consideration, the way they did that particular series was, to me, fucking amazing. Because you get freaked out about stuff you maybe even shouldn't get freaked out about in that series. Yeah, I, I, I love the series. And a, a good friend of mine, uh, Jay Photos, who is the colorist for uh, Pandemica, for uh, Viewers, was the art director for that, for that show. Um, so I also have a personal bias, but even even if Jay hadn't been involved in it, I, I, I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. It's one of those things that I watched while on book tour. So I'm sitting in creepy hotel rooms in, in the movie. <laughs> I'm like, this is actually, I'm actually uh, going to go check that the door's locked. You know, this is, uh, this is really hitting me in the right way. Um, okay, so that leads me to ask you, as a horror writer, 
uh, Val's not a horror writer, but there are sometimes I'm writing certain scenes. I almost have to get up, walk away, go pet the cat, go see reality again to get back into my writing because I freak myself out sometimes when I'm writing stuff because what I write is very graphic in, in telling. What about you? Do you feel you get freaked out by your writing? I, I in, in different ways. Uh, the only one of my horror things that actually gave me uh, nightmares, I did a, a book called Dead of Night. It's a zombie novel. And one of the conceits within the story is that everyone who becomes a zombie, their body is being driven by parasites. So it does what zombies do, you know, do, walks around, bites and kills. But the personality, the consciousness of the person who had inhabited that body while they were alive is there, still trapped in there. It's connected to all five senses. So you have all the sensory input from the biting and the everything, but there's no connection to motor control. So they're a helpless passenger as their body goes and does these destructive things. And oh, I, that's dark. Well, my father-in-law, who was a great guy and a you know, fabulous musician, was dying of dementia. Oh. So it was an allegory, and that, that freaked me out. But usually, I, you know, the things that, that kind of freak me out a little bit, when I get in the head of one of the of really bad characters in one of my stories, not just a villain, but one of the, usually it's somebody working for the villain, the, a, a sociopath or psychopath who's, who's used to do damage. Um, after writing one of those scenes, I'll, I'll go pet the dog, have a glass of whole milk, maybe read the Bible. No, not really, but I'll, I'll go do something, you know, to remind me that there's an actual healthy, happy world out there. And then I go back to writing. If, if it's really lingering, I'll go write something else instead, the next chapter. I'll go write maybe a love scene or, or a comedy scene or something to get that taste out of my mouth, so to speak. Uh, because, you know, I'm a, a normal-ish, uh, uh, sane, <laughs> guy, but, but I'm a writer, so sometimes you have to get in the, in the head some really bizarre and disturbing characters. And when you do, you need to make sure that the, the exit patch is not locked. No, that makes sense. Do you have you ever started writing a scene or writing a part of your story where you're like, you know, I will have to say there are certain stories that I write that I step back and go, whoa, like it's not even in my realm of how I think about things to write. How do you feel about when you get into that point? Because obviously we're not serial killers, we're not that sort of thing, we're not zombies, we're not monsters. Do you get to a point where you're like, whoa, that I even went there? Well, yeah, a little bit. And, and there are times you, you, know, you really wonder how, how you as a sane moral person can really come up with those things. But that's, that's the writer's craft. The writer, we are chameleon-brained. You know, we, we can become any character. And once we're in that character, we really should understand their worldview. We don't personally subscribe to it or endorse it. But it has to be legitimate when you're in that character's point of view or the story falls flat. So if I'm writing from the point of view of someone who's doing tremendous harm, I have to find, you know, like the old actor joke, what's my motivation? I have to find the motivation for that character to do that in a way that he can sustain doing it over the course of years, months, or you know, however long he's, he's in that zone. Um, it's, it's the first couple of times it's disturbing, but then it's, some, it's something you can switch on. Because it becomes, and I'm writing my 37th novel, so I can switch into that mode. I'm less freaked out about it now than I was, but at first I had to do some soul searching to, to discover, you know, where that comes from. And it's a conversation we in the Horror Writers Association have 
And our, our abiding philosophy is better out than in. Totally. Okay, so then I actually have another rapid-fire question, believe it or not. I came up with one. I'm superiorly drunk, but I'm going to come up with one. Do you have a, a character or a mindset that has been really difficult for you to get into and very hard necessarily to come out of when you're writing it? I don't have any that are hard for me to get out of, but there are some that I don't get into. Like if a character, if I need a character to be a sexual predator of some kind, you know, that is so antithetical to who I am. I was an abused child. And, you know, so I, I am not going to get inside that headspace. But, but if I, so if I'm writing a scene where the character is a sexual predator, the challenge then is to, is to what do I need to show of that with, uh, so that I don't cross over into exploitive? Because I never want it to be exploitive or gratuitous. You know, where's the, where's the, like, like if, if there's a rape scene in the story, it's never going to be graphic. It's never going to be on, on screen or on, on, on the page because I've seen too many uh, movies and read too many books where clearly the writer is, is being titillated by the fact that it's, uh, it's, it's a rape because they are uh, thinking that rape is sex rather than violence. And I, you know, I, I taught women's self-defense for 35 years. Rape is violence. It's not sex. So I, if I write that, I'm going to focus on the degree of violence that it is, the, the violation, the, the horror of it, and the damage that it does to, to people, not only the victim, but the people in, in, in the surroundings. Um, I'm not going to write it in a way that, that becomes graphic entertainment. So I, I, I have I have certain certain limits. I won't go beyond because I choose not to because I understand what you know that it would be you know cheesy and exploitive rather than good writing. No, I think that's amazing. It's interesting because especially as horror writers, and me and you get to talk about this, and Valerie can shut the fuck up. But as horror writers, we go into realms that are scary and degraded and dirty and stuff like that. And it's how do you give it that authenticity without taking away from the fact, like one of my favorite things is in the sort of truth series, for instance, um, there was a character that was a pedophile. He was the bad guy in the first book and he was a pedophile and it didn't go into graphics about the pedophilia, but it went into the fact that this is a bad character that doesn't have any redeeming qualities. Like one of the things I personally hate as a reader and as an author is not every bad person has a redeeming quality that makes him okay to be doing what he's doing, right? Yeah, my, my character, Raphael Santoro is, I mean, he, there's no part of him that he is quite aware that he's corrupt and he knows that it's a useful tool and that's a skill he sells, but I don't have to agree with him. And my hero, becomes my cipher for how I would react if that person was in my sphere. Do you feel like heroes in general, like a lot of times stories are written with heroes being like 100% redeemed, they're bathed in some sort of angel light and everything is okay. How do you feel that heroes should really be perceived going through some of the very traumatic, dramatic situations. Yeah, I was going to say, that's one of the comments I get. I write fantasy romance, paranormal romance, but my characters are very broken, very traumatic. Uh, they're not the same person they can, you know, you start the story with. Uh, I don't know if you guys have read any of my Joe Ledger novels, but psychologically, yes. he's a bag of hamsters. And, uh, I mean, he's, he's a mess, and he gets worse. In fact, the most recent novel that came out last year, Rage, um, 
at the end of that, I mean, he's always been psychologically fractured as because of a childhood event, but he's been able to use it as a spec ops guy. But every time he does violence, it does a little more damage to him. Nobody, I mean, I was a bodyguard for years, uh, I was a bouncer for years. I've been in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of fights, and stabbed, shot at, chopped in the shoulder with a meat cleaver. Not joking. So, you know, I, uh, I know how much violence leaves a mark when it happens to me. But I also remember the violence, how violence left a mark on me when, I, when I've done it to someone else, even in defense of someone. It's a bodyguard. You're protecting someone else. You have to hurt people. There, violence always leaves a mark. And a, a character should reflect that. In this class of telling a story, the character should never be the same at the end of the story as they are at the beginning. That's, that's not true because experience changes us. And traumatic experience changes us permanently. So um, I, I, I study a lot about psychology, philosophy, and uh, the social dynamics of trauma. And that plays into the characters I create and how, I, how that character's arc is played out in the story. How did, okay, so you're a, a, a very famous author. I'm not even gonna say a pretty famous author. You're a very famous author. Um, what is your perspective on being a very famous author at this point in time? Your perspective to your fans, perspective as a writer? Because um, you're kind of a big deal. Whether you realize it or not, you are kind of a big deal. So Here's the thing about that. I, I, I check in with myself on a pretty regular basis. I don't let it get, get to my head. You know, I know I'm lucky, and I know that my business sense has also made me successful. Um, but, you know, I'm still the same the same essential person I was back when I was trying to find my agent for the first time, before I was successful. Um, I, I don't take myself too seriously. I take myself seriously enough. I don't have an over-exaggerated version, nor do I have an excessive degree of, of fake humility. I, I, I know where I am. I like it. I'm, I've worked to be here, and I'm working to get better at it. But it doesn't make me a better person. It doesn't make me, a you know... I, I'm still the same guy, you know, and because I check in with myself, um, I'm pretty sure that I'm not going to fall into that, you know, oh, look at me, I'm the famous writer, you must, you know, it, it, it sounds too much to push it, and, you know, I'm just not there. I funny, I had a conversation about this. Yeah, with thank you. Uh, with at, who? I'm sorry, with who? At Dragon Con. We, we, we were in his hotel room and I were next to each other, and we, we actually met at the ice, ice machine. And uh, you know, like both, you do. we're both in pajamas, getting ice, and Nimoy's like, you know, our fans think we have people for this. We don't have people for this. Um, and, you know, we're just hanging out being two guys. We were talking about how the whole fan thing is useful, and it's, you know, because you want to sell books or movies or whatever. But if you start believing the press about you, then you lose perspective and you stop being genuine. And, being genuine is, is a lot more fun because you know who you are. Um, you, you know, if you have a fault, you can you can see it more clearly if you're not being an egotist, and therefore you can work on fixing it. And if you have something that you know people respond to, you can say, okay, let me give more of that because that makes people happy. That makes readers happy knowing you or, or reading your books. Let me do more of that because that that's fun. Um, the one thing that my level of success does for me though it gives me the opportunity to help a lot of other writers and that feels good because a little look quick back story. during the 2009 economic downturn we saw two camps uh, diverge you know and, and establish during that. one camp seemed to be 
that a writer felt, you know, some, some writers felt that if they help someone else, if they give a lead or make a connection, that their opportunity will be taken. That opportunities are finite. So they, they, they go on a, on, on a, uh, a selfish, fear-based mentality. The other camp, which is much bigger but not as vocal, believes that if writers help other writers, more good books will get written. Those, that, that expanse of good books will draw in more readers, and all of publishing will prosper. Plus, we'll have a hell of a lot of fun along the way. So um, I, I'm in that second camp. I don't let fear or uh, the needs of my ego being stroked play any part of my business plan, ever. I'm, I'm too busy having fun doing what I do. Because you figure, what is my job description? Professional daydreamer? And, you know, I have a, there we go. Uh, <laughs> I, I like it. It says I, I tell lies to complete strangers for money. I mean, that's <laughs> that's right. How, how seriously can you take yourself if you're just making shit up every day and they're paying you for it? How seriously can you really take yourself if that's, if that's your job description? You should be waking up every day going, life is fucking great. I love it. Let me go do more of it. And, you know. To go and have fun. I I think that's fucking brilliant. So I gotta ask you, I gotta ask you, how many words a day? You write eight hours a day, you treat it as a full-time job. How many words a day do you end up putting in your paper on average? I have a question. How much? Four about four thousand a day. Um, if I'm writing if I'm near the end of a book and I'm writing action scenes, you know, big it can go up to seven or eight. If I'm just starting a book, it might be as little as 1,500 because I'm still trying to feel it out and get a sense of it. But on a, you know, it, on a good day, about 4,000. So you're writing a lot because you have contractual agreements to write a lot, which is fucking amazing. But how many works do you start? Like as an, a writer, I can sometimes think of a story or a short story, start going down the path and going, this is fucking going nowhere. I don't even know where this is going. Chuck it or shove it. What do you do in regards to that when you're as kind of a big deal as you are? Well, it's it's weird because I don't write anything until I pitched it and sold it. Nothing. I mean, the first couple of novels I had, like everyone else, had to write the complete novel and so on. But, you know, I've got got one of the top agents in the business and uh, Sarah Crow picking property. She's amazing. Woo! She's the agent. Sorry, I have to give man props. So when I, when I come up with an idea, I'll, I'll send her maybe a paragraph on two or three ideas and ask which one is the one you think is going to sell um, in, in today's market. Now, little side note, if you're not yet positioned to do this, don't ever chase a trend. You can't. You don't have the time for it. But knowing that I can turn out a novel in a few months, I can I can actually chase a trend or I can – she Echo, stop. Uh, alarm. Uh, I can um, I, I can pitch something that she says. Well, this is starting to get hot. A good example of that. Um, early this year, um, my my editor at, at uh, Simon at, at uh, Macmillan, you know, reached out and said, "Hey, do you have any interest in writing epic fantasy?" And I had written epic fantasy short stories, but never a novel. And so I, I said, "Okay, let me put together some ideas." I gave my agent three different ideas, and she sent them to the editor. And within three days, we had a we had a two book deal. So I'll actually write the books because they're already sold. I can't, you know, the worst that can happen is I start writing that draft of it, and 
I, I realize I don't find the voice and go back and, and, and start over again. But as far as writing projects, you know, actually getting into gear, I'm not, I'm past that phase in my career, thank God. You know, uh, if, I, if I'm going to write something, even a comic book, I've already been paid for it. So I have to write it. Do you have any passion projects? I got to ask that. Do you have any projects that you're doing for you because you want to do it and you don't already have payment for it? And to tack on to the back of that a little bit, is there, a, you know, you, you, you said you've done over 37 stories by now. Is there a bad habit that still haunts you? Okay, you know what? Let me start with my question. Okay. You are a fucking tenacious bitch. Okay. Sorry. I'll, I'll, Start I'll, with mine. I will answer both. Um, do I have any? Um, what was your question again? Passion project. Passion that was. Project. Well, I have a passion project. It's a passion project I want to write, but my agent says that we can't get any real money for it. I want to write a literary novel about a, a writer's column. Uh, I have a story in mind. I have a title. I have an outline. But you know, the money we would get for that would be one eightieth of what I get for a novel. And there's no way my agent wants, wants me to spend three months writing something that would get me pocket change where I could spend three months writing something that could make me a fair amount of money. You think he'll do that, though? I mean, that is your passion project in so your I heart keep, of hearts. I keep saying I'm going to do it. But <laughs> the problem is, um, I, 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 every year I get busier. Um, and you know, it's, 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 I know it's a first world problem, that's for sure. But I, you know, half the projects I have right now are, are, are doing because editors reached out and said, hey, we would like something from you. Can you pitch us something? DC Comics, they reached out of the blue and said, hey, can, we, can you pitch something for DC Comics? No, no offense, I couldn't say no to that either. <laughs> I've never written for DC before. I've written for Marvel and you know, I did Black Panther and a bunch of other things for Marvel. But DC wasn't something I had planned to pitch to, even though I, I do read DC Comics. But they asked, you know, can, can you hit us with some pitches? And I, I, hit my, I gave them two pitches for two different characters. And I can't talk about the details yet because they're not disclosure. But two different pitches. They liked them both. One, they, and one of them, they said, would probably sell five times as many copies as the other. So they offered me a bizarre amount of money for that. And I'm like, really? For writing a 190-page graphic novel? Okay. I'll take that. You're and like, yes, what is the acceptance button? Is it just enter? Can I just hit enter? <laughs> it's funny, too, because my agent and I, you know, my agent had represented other DC graphic novels, not floppy comic, but the actual graphic novel written to be published in book form. And uh, there's a certain fee level that, that is standard in the industry. And uh, she said, you know, would you write it for that? And I said, I'd prefer, you know, maybe a 25% bump on that because that's, Less than I would I would get for writing um, two novellas, and she said, "All right, let, let me see what I can do." And then, before we could even ask, DC Comics just said, "And we'd like to pay you this amount of money." And my agent and I are going, huh. <laughs> "Well, okay, <laughs> well, that's um, almost everything." Yeah, You're like, "Where is the accept button? Yeah, can we yeah. just be sent that?" That was one of those things where the offer came in, and 15 minutes later, we had agreed to it. I mean, you know. Those 14 of those minutes for my agent, I'm just laughing because it's like, holy shit, that's, that was easy. Um, so anyway, so that, that's my passion project. If I ever come up with, I have a year where I have chunks of time, I'll probably write it anyway. 
Um, but right now, I don't. And, and your question was, the other question was? So, is there still bad habits in your writing that still come to the surface? Like, Erica, all her characters are realizing things. Everybody realizes fucking Suddenly <laughs> And then all my characters like the sigh. They so and so sighs, and then so they all just like standing in a room sighing at each other. We have another friend that everybody shrugs. Everybody yeah. shrugs during every scene. There, there are phrases that I have tended to use over the years, and and now that I have, I have a full time assistant, now, and her job is when I finish writing a, something, I give it to her, and she, you know, I love her to pieces. She's a novelist herself, Dana Fredsky. Uh, written a bunch of novels for Titan. And um, she's really good at finding phrases that I use too damn often. Um, what is and, the number one phrase? We need to know the number one phrase you use too often. Uh, describing a dead body as slumping down into a ragdoll sprawl. <laughs> I don't know why that showed up in five different books, but it's like, it's too unique a phrase to, uh, to use over and over again. Right. Um, so I, I, I have a, a list somewhere in my desk of phrases I'm never allowed to use again. Um, I tell people, make a list of your bad habits. You'd be shocked what was on that list. Yeah, my, my editor, McMillan, said that, that I used, used to use the word just too often. I don't know how. You know, I had to go back and look yeah, at you know, yeah. a global search on the word just, and it was like, oh, yeah, you're right. I used it too often. Now, now it's like every time I want to use the word, I have to like, am I allowed to use that now? I, you know, I, I overthink it now, but uh, oh, I, I'm with you on the word realize right now. I literally every time I start to write the word realize, I'm like, wait, is this an appropriate place to use? Realize that. I realize so many things in even everyday life. It's terrible, but I do find myself stopping, pausing, and going, wait, how many times have I realized this same exact thing throughout the journey here of this book? Well, Jonathan Mayberry, you are a complete delight. I just want to say that. It was fun. This was a whole Thank bunch you. of fun. I hope so, because we try to be a little bit different. We want to make sure we're not going, hey, what are the same questions? He's been asked five well, million times. Never been on a podcast like this before, so I'm having a problem. Please invite me back. Okay. I will absolutely invite you back. Yeah. Absolutely. I think Maybe next time we'll have a really good martini. I'll have a Bombay Sapphire, straight up three olives in a remove. Ooh. Are you going to get your lovely wife to make that or something that you will produce? She's, she's not. She doesn't drink very much, so uh, I, I will make it. Either that or get your assistant that you mentioned. Well, to bring you them. lives at the other end of California. She, I, I live in San, in San Diego. She lives in Eureka. So. Oh, not even close. Not even close. sex apart, so, you know. Yeah, so we will specifically hire somebody bringing Bombay martinis through the next podcast. Absolutely. You have fun. you've been wonderful. Is there any last advice you want to give any authors who are listening out there? Yeah, only do the projects that you find fun. If, if it's not fun, you're doing it wrong. Woo! Amen to that. Amen to that. I love that. Okay, so... This has been Drinking with Authors. This is the Literary Briefs episode. I'm your host, Erica Lance. And I have been Valerie Willis. And Very our guest Very today quiet. has been the amazing, the intrepid, the unstoppable Jonathan Mayberry. Jonathan Mayberry. Any last words of advice, my friend? Uh, yeah, just keep having fun. That, 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 that's, my, that's my favorite thing to tell people, is have fun. So have fun. And awesome. You guys have fun.
thank you so much for being on our podcast. And we'll see you next time. All right. Take care, guys. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye.